everyone hope you are well so i am just through uh watching the first two episodes of i think it's season 23 24 i'm not sure of the apprentice whatever the latest apprentice tv series is in the uk i think it's on bbc one um I don't know why I still watch this shit. I really don't. I mean, it, it's got cringier and cringier year on year. I, I think it's just because it's car crash TV at this point that I still watch it. For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, there was a version of it in the US that was hosted by Donald Trump. I'm pretty sure there's a version in Australia, just thinking of my Australian clients. If there's not, let me explain the premise. The premise is that somebody like Donald Trump or Sir Alan Sugar, in the case of the UK one, is giving investment to the winner of a reality show. And in that reality show, they take a number of entrepreneurs, boys and girls, and put them through a series of tasks and then whittle it down. They fire somebody every single week for doing a terrible job, um, sometimes for doing something quite funny. Um, and then the winner is given, in the case of the UK, £250,000 and an investment and partnership with Sir Alan Sugar which is some sort of prize, I guess. Um, but that's a story for another day. But ultimately, the first episode for me just had me in, in absolute stitches laughing, so I had to share it with you, right? So the the idea behind the episode one is that they're doing these corporate retreats and these corporate away days. So you've got a team of boys and a team of girls, and they have to go and sell. Now, naturally, in this show, they are fantastic at over-promising and under-delivering, which is the complete opposite of what you want, but it's something that they specialize in year upon year. So they sell it at a decent price, and, and these corporates are expect these corporate executives, sorry, are expecting something pretty decent, right? Now, it all goes quite funny, but I'm going to share with you one particular moment, and you can probably paint a picture for what's about to happen as I guide you through this. So the girls team are making a nice meal of homemade fish cakes with breadcrumbs and rhubarb crumble so crumble obviously being a mixture of the flour and the sugar and whatever else goes into it right it's very sweet you can probably see where i'm going with this so um check out this clip breadcrumbs on the right the yeah. are right. something's not right yeah it's not um, it's not nice the girls have been using crumble which is sweet on the fish cakes because they thought they were breadcrumbs. The client wants a five-star experience. Well, I don't think you can give any stars to crumble on a fish cake. And things didn't really get much better for them when the clients tasted it either. Do you think that's breadcrumbs? I don't think that's breadcrumbs. Um, would you? I'm, I'm not convinced the fish cake has got breadcrumbs on it. It's very flowery. Mm -hmm. It it almost tastes like it's a it's quite sweet. So I'm, I think it's possibly crumbled. So I'm pretty much underwhelmed at the moment, being candid. Well, thank you for the feedback. Let us go speak to the kitchen, and we'll be right back. Is that okay? Okay. Right, we'll be with you soon. Thank Cheers. you. It's, not it's absolutely not breadcrumbs. No, it's not breadcrumbs. Now, what was really interesting for me about this was that they still tried to pass it off. They tr still tried to sell it. They recognized the mistake and they sold it, right? And it wasn't like they deliberately made this mistake. They should have put it in the breadcrumbs. It wasn't like they thought, oh, this could be clever. Like, maybe we should try it with the crumble. But it actually reminded me a lot of what happens when people approach me. So I get a lot of people coming to me saying, can you make me the celebrity in my industry? You know, I've seen the awards. I've seen what you do. I know such and such a client. I want the same thing, right? So I want to be on this stage. 
this event, this TV show, you know, I want to go from being my industry's best kept secret to being a thought leader, an authority, a celebrity, whatever terminology it is that you want to use. And they usually come with a pretty great story, right? Great backstory, great experience, and they're sharing all this stuff, but then they tell me about their offer. And their offer is definitely a fish cake with crumble, right? And you're like, I'm not sure that's a good idea, but they're so close to it, they just can't see that nobody wants that, right? No, no, Mm -mm. Mm -mm. no, 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 hell no, 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 I refuse, no, no. This actually reminds me of a personal story as well. If she ever sees this, she'll probably kill me for sharing it, but I'll tell you anyway. So I had an ex-girlfriend and one day, pretty early in our relationship, she decided to cook for me. Now, little did I know that she didn't cook very often. That should have been my first clue. But she made me this pasta dish. And it was pretty horrific. Um, it was overcooked, soggy pasta. Um, she had, I don't think she had a, a pepper grinder, so she just poured pepper in there. So this thing was pretty inedible. It was disgusting. But I didn't want to hurt the girl's feelings. I wanted to be polite. It was very early in the relationship. I was grateful that she'd cooked me, even if it was fucking disgusting. Um, and I remember sitting there thinking, please don't make me eat any more of this shit. But I had to, right? That was it. I had to eat it. But, but I, if I was in a restaurant, I would have said, take that back. I'm not eating this shit, right? That's disgusting. I'm, this, I'm, this is one I paid for. And one of the things that, that jumps out with me when we talk about restaurants and things like that is that I like to watch a lot of Gordon Ramsay. In fact, a little secret for you. Um, Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares and Hotel Hell is probably my junk TV. I've seen each of those episodes like a hundred times at this point, but it's the stuff I like to put in the background and just play because it, it helps me to relax. I don't know why I like it so much. Maybe it's the fellow Brit. I don't know. Um, but I do really enjoy it. And he has this phrase that he says when he's talking about restaurants. And he says, they don't always vote with their mouth. They vote with their feet. So what he means is they don't always tell you that it's not nice food. They just don't come back. And it's the same for our customers as consultants. Sometimes we're presenting them to something and we're like, they should be doing this. They should want it. And either the way that we're positioning it is wrong or they just don't like the taste of it or it's a fish cake with crumble and we haven't noticed it because we're too close. We, you know, like those girls, they made that mistake. They didn't know they were doing it. They made the mistake and they put it out there. But we've all done that, right? Um, and what is fascinating for me about that is that some people will like it and then other people will just go absolutely not and they'll walk away from it and that sends us mixed messages as a consultant there's a great scene actually from um friends the tv show i haven't watched that for a long time actually i should uh, and rachel makes a trifle but there's a page missing in the book so she makes a trifle that has meat in it and everyone else hates it but joey really likes it right here's the clip What's not to like? Custard? Good. Jam? Good. Meat? Good. Right? So sometimes as consultants, that's the feedback that we get is some people are liking it, but other people that we think should be biting our hand off are just saying no. What are they doing? They're not voting with their mouth. They're voting with their feet. They're not telling you that something's wrong. They're showing you that something's wrong by not joining you or not staying with you or whatever it is. And this isn't your fault. We all make these mistakes. I will share a big mistake with you that I've made recently that thankfully we've overcome, but it, it, you know, it's a prime example of what I'm talking about right here. Okay. So during COVID, a lot of my clients went from 
needing to be on the right stages, the right platforms, the right authority to just wanting the sales piece. Because for me, you know, it's the authority, the positioning, turning you into the thought leader with some sales and revenue stuff that comes with it. But during that time, everybody wanted more clients. They were desperate for more clients. So our offer really came to start talking more and more about the sales and the lead gen. And that was all we were talking about. And then that's what we've experienced over the past, let's say, three years. As people get to the authority piece, they're saying, oh, this is the bit that I really wanted. And then they get really excited. So they're getting results on the other side. But the bit that they're really excited about is being the keynote speaker, being the paid speaker, getting the corporate workshops, getting the media attention, getting paid to speak whilst filling your pipeline, right? That's the stuff that they're getting super excited about. The fact that they're now positioned as an authority in their industry, so they've got loads more credibility, making sales easier, lead generation easier. Uh, it's really leveraging their experience, right? And they love it. That's what they love. But I wasn't selling that. I was selling the, oh, we do sales and lead generation, plus we do some authority stuff rather than the other way around. So it took me quite a few times of hearing it. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. At least five, right? And, and what was really the catalyst for me was about a month ago, I had someone that really should have joined up as a client and they didn't. And I had a client of mine who is working with me, still working with me, but both of them, that person that should have joined and my client, started working with another coach who is teaching them how to get on stages and platforms, right? And I'm like, but that's what we teach you. And my messaging was so messed up that that wasn't clear. Now, here's the kicker. The person that they both joined applied to me last week to become a client so that I can teach them how to do it. Isn't that the irony? But I don't blame them for that. I blame me. I don't even blame my client going somewhere else or the prospect going somewhere else. This is entirely my fault. I made this mistake and I needed to hear this to be able to turn her off around and say, you know what? This is the stuff we're really good at. This is the stuff we're fun at. Let me show you how to get on those stages and become that industry celebrity. Go from unknown to unrivaled and we'll increase your revenue and sort your lead gen out while we're at it. But it's in that order, right? So it was so important that I learned that. And I think once you acknowledge the mistake, you can start to fix it. But if you can't see it, that's the problem. I think the issue a lot of people have is when somebody tells them or raises a mistake and they says, hey, I'm not so sure that crumble is supposed to be with that fish cake. They're kind of like, well, it's good that way. It's good like that. We have people tell us all the time there that it's go. good. There's no point in me saying anything to you because you just say, well, it's good like that. Whatever. Right? And that doesn't help anybody because then we're not moving forward. So ultimately what I'm saying to you here is a great way to really position yourself and position your offers is not to sit with a pen and paper and try and go through this and work this out. Like I had this conversation with a client just the other day. They said to me, I'm trying to craft a new offer. I need some ideas. Like what's the things that's really working right now? Like how do I make this really hot? How do I make this sell? And I said to them, look, you're probably not going to like this advice because it's going to sound really simple, but I promise you it's simple because it works. So I'm sharing it with you, which is you don't buy your stuff right? Your clients do. So you sitting with a pen and paper and trying to work out what's the best way to offer this to somebody and what's the best way to package this. You don't know. If you knew, you'd already done it, but you don't know, right? So who does know? The people who are paying your invoices, your prospects, the people that you want to work with. I promise you, your best offers are not going to be created by you. Your best offers are going to be created by your clients and your prospects. If you ask the right questions, you will get the right answers. But so many people try and sit 
on their own, pen and paper, iPad, whatever, and just brainstorm these ideas of what can they do and what's going to work. I promise you the very best way to establish this is to be very clear, position yourself as the authority, be crystal clear on what it is that are your superpowers, your strengths, and your weaknesses, and then take that to market and say, how would you best utilize these skills? How can I best help you? And I promise you the right people are going to give you those answers. So don't worry about trying to brainstorm with this. Don't worry about trying to figure out how to hard sell a fish cake covered in crumble. It's not going to work. Nobody wants that shit. What they want is you, the authentic version of you, selling them what they really need. And the best people to ask about that is your clients. And I've come across a story that's pretty much everywhere at the moment. Business Insider covering it, Times are covering it, uh, and Fortune are covering it, which is that McKinsey have put 3,000 consultants at risk of losing their job by giving them a poor performance. Now, that's pretty bad anyway. Uh, poor, from, poor performance report. There we go. Put my teeth in. That's pretty bad anyway that there's 3,000 consultants that aren't doing a good job. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you start to realize that as always, there's more than one side to a story. And some of the consultants are now hitting back. Okay, they're doing so uh, in an anonymous way because they don't want to lose their jobs earlier than they have to. Uh, but ultimately, what they're saying is that business is really slow right now, that the reason that they're not performing properly is because McKinsey aren't providing enough clients for them to work with. They're not winning enough projects. And I have to confess, I'm not really surprised because this has been happening to all of the big firms. For those of you who have been following my work for quite some time now, you'll know that I actually mentioned this a few years ago, that I could see a real shift going from the big conglomerates, the big you know consultancies that have been there for 150 years, the faceless organizations that it was the logo on the business card that used to do the talking for you. And instead, what people were realizing was, unless you're one of these firms that's paying them tens or hundreds of millions of dollars a year, you're getting like the junior intern, you're getting the junior person in the team, and you're still paying a bloody good rate for it too, because you're paying for the brand, you're paying for the logo. So what people were realizing was, I don't want that. I want someone who is experienced, good at what they do, and I'm going to get to know that person and can look at their track record. Because one of the things that these firms tend to like to do is they lump in everybody's track record together and they come out with these incredibly impressive stats. But it's like, we're generating... 150 trillion dollars a year and we're doing this and we're you know we're, we're working with 50,000 people at a time and all this kind of stuff well not the consultant that you're working with isn't right so what's their track record because they usually tend to be a bit faceless and it's not like they don't know this so i won't tell you who because i don't want to get in trouble and i definitely don't want to get sued um but last year one of the big four approached me and their global director who is based in the states came to me and said we see what you do. We know some of the people that you work with. Can you do that for some of our executive consultants? Can you create a personal brand for them, help them get on the right stages, the right platform so that people can start to recognize them as an authority? Now, I said no, because for any of you who've known me for more than five minutes, you know I'm very much about David beating Goliath. I don't want to teach Goliath how to kick the shit out of David. I want to help you beat the other guy, beat the big guy. So in fact, I cover that a lot in my book, not that I'm plugging the book. Now in all good bookstores. Um, but all joking aside, like there was no way I wanted to do that, but it was just reinforcing in my mind that I hadn't lost the plot. I wasn't insane, right? Because we're not always right all the time. But what I thought I was seeing was this migration from these big firms to these small consulting practices, either solo practices or let's say less than 150 people. And that's great news. That is great news. However, there's a couple of things that come out here, right? 
Number one that jumps out at me is that if the big firms don't have enough money, it's not going to be long before they really jump on this personal brand bandwagon, right? Before they start branding themselves as the authority, before McKinsey and everybody else is well known for having 150, 200, 500, 1,000 of the best consultants in the world because they're working on their brands. Not going to take them long to do that. Or the flip side of that is that using the articles that we're seeing right now, we could have up to 3,000 new consultants in the market going solo, right? So there are ways of winning here and there are ways of losing. But if you're not aware you're in the game, good luck winning. Uh, what are we playing? I'm playing poker. He's playing Go Fish, and I think he's hungry. 2024 is all about attention economy, right? It is all about making sure that people know you. There's loads of great consultants out there, and if you're watching this, you may well be one of them who, you know, you get great results, your clients love you, you get repeat business, you get referrals, but outside your small circle of influence, nobody knows that you exist. That's dangerous territory to be in because the people who are going to really succeed this year are the ones who understand that perception beats perfection. It's better to be best known than it is to be best in class. If you can be both of those things, amazing. If you can only be one of those things, you better get working on perception because I know people who are best in class that are going to go broke this year. And it's not because they're not amazing. It's not because they're not great at what they do. It's because they are a classic example of their industry's best kept secret. They're not speaking on the right stages. They're not networking in the right places. They're not in the right conversations. They're not getting the right coverage. They're not getting the right press attention. So by not being on the right platform, stages, podcast, media, nobody knows that they exist. So nobody's looking for them. And that's dangerous, right? Now, the good news is you still have time to turn that around. And like with everything, there is a blueprint, right? There is a way of following a set recipe for success that takes your key ingredients and what makes you special and blends them with a strategy that's already working to help you get that elevation. But you better get on with it because if you don't and people like McKinsey and those 3,000 consultants starts coming into the market, it's just become so much more saturated. And I guarantee a lot of those people, especially the switched on ones, will be leaving going, the reason this didn't work is that we didn't have a brand. We didn't have a personal brand. We weren't well known. So now we have our own firm. We better fix that. We better work on that together. And if this is the article that's now being ran for a few days now by a few outlets, about 3,000 from McKinsey, number one, they never tell you the truth. So I suspect that number's bigger. Number two, you think they're the only firm going through this? I highly doubt it. In fact, having had the conversation I did last year, I'll let you in on a clue. It wasn't McKinsey I spoke to. They're not the only ones going through this. So this is a win or lose situation. And the good news is you get to choose which one you're going to be. The only difference is who takes the action and who buries their head in the sand and says that there's not a problem. Understand the game that you're playing, understand where you are, and understand that your talent isn't enough. You have to be recognized for who you are. You have to be on that spotlight. So put in some effort with it. Have a think about what I'm saying. Go and read these articles. See where the opportunity is. But I promise you, there are going to be people who thrive in 2024 and there are going to be people who disappear and maybe even go broke and have to close their firm now. And it's not going to be based on talent. It's going to be based on visibility and credibility. A very quick story for you because I think it might highlight something and potentially even spark some food for thought. Um, so about a year ago, I was working with a client. They were a consultancy based out of Germany and they were, they were doing pretty well. But I kept talking to them about new markets. I kept saying, look, your skill set, everything you're great at, 
your reputation. Do you know there's other markets that this would be so much better utilized in? And and I don't just mean markets as in like client-based and industries. I meant geographical. Like you could just pick up your business and plonk it somewhere else in this digital age and really start to win very quickly. And they were always like, yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree, but, but. And somebody once said to me that when somebody says but in a sentence, it means ignore what I've just said. This is what I actually mean. So yes, 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 I completely agree we should do that, Phil. But I want to master this market first. I want to crush this market first. And what they couldn't see was that the market they were competing in was incredibly oversaturated. There were way too many consultants doing what they did for the market size. And he was essentially choosing to run up a hill with concrete boots for him and his firm. And he just couldn't see it. So in the end, we basically parted ways very amicably, but he was going to take what I taught him and go and use it to crush that market, whereas I saw his opportunities lying somewhere else. So we agreed to come back to it when he was ready. We still haven't done that, by the way. About mm, five or six months after, one of his direct competitors approached me and said, hey, I know that you did this for, almost said their name, this person. I'm also looking to dominate this market. And I said, okay. So I spoke to the guy and I said, we're not working together at the minute. Do you mind if I work with this other person? I don't think he was enamored with that idea, but he reluctantly said, listen, I can't tie you into working with me when we're not working together. So off you go. So I had the conversation with the guy and naturally the conversation led to there's other markets you should be looking at, you know, like we talked about this, except he was much more receptive. He was like, I'm, I'm all over that field. Like if you're telling me that it's easier in that market and that we could crush it, then we'll absolutely go do it. What are we going to do tomorrow night, Ray? Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. And this doesn't just work for, you know, winning clients, by the way. This often works for credibility as well. So I'll give you like some quick examples. Uh, years ago, I had a friend of mine who had a band and they were in the States and they were desperate to getting Rolling Stones magazine. They were like, oh, it was their dream. That was all they wanted, right? So what I did was I said to them, well, let's get you appearing, uh, you know, sending some stuff and doing some virtual gigs because it was during COVID time um, in different countries. And we ended up getting them into India. They were doing this event in India. And Rolling Stones India featured them. And then because Rolling Stones India featured them, we asked them for an introduction to Rolling Stones USA. Guess what happened? So we backdoored it. It's the same with Forbes. It's the same with Inc. For those of you that don't know, like Forbes magazine, like they're in South Africa. They're in Croatia. They're in tons of other places that you could get uh, get your content created. And it's much easier to get involved in those countries. It's much easier to give back something back to those markets, get involved with an event, get involved with a charity, get involved with a business and get it featured there and then reverse engineer into these other markets. It's so much easier to do that, but people don't look outside of their own solution. So let's take America as an example. America is a market that everybody wants to work in. Very difficult market. It's a market we broke in about 10 years. I love it. We win a lot of awards. I love my American clients, but it's a very difficult market. It's very heavily saturated, but yet everybody around the world looks at it and says, I want to do that. I go to America. And then they look at those markets and they say, I want to get into that market, but nobody knows me there without realizing that with the right blueprint, there is a way of leveraging the credibility that you've already created in another country and another market and taking that with you. Well, that also works taking that and exporting it from America and Australia and the Middle East and the UK or whatever to another market, right? So we took this person, we took this client and we introduced them to, I'll tell you the truth, we introduced them to the Australian market. 
and they absolutely cleaned up. There was a lot less consultants doing what they did. They leveraged the fact that they were this big firm that had done a great job in the United States, not big in terms of size, but big in terms of achievement and projects, right? And they absolutely cleaned up in Australia. We also did this years ago for an agency. There was an ad agency based in New York and they were really struggling to win clients. And they were saying to us, you know, cost of acquiring the client makes the job not worth doing. Like they all want whining and dining. They all want taking to the ball game. Like they come back to us and say, oh, this person said they'll do it for this price. Will you do it cheaper? And it's a race to the bottom on fees. Meanwhile, what we worked out was whilst there was hundreds of competitors for them, hundreds in New York alone, not even the rest of the US, just in New York City, in Melbourne, there was like 15 people that did what they did. So we could move them as this big, sexy New York ad agency to Melbourne and they would crush it. And they did. Now, here's the fun part. The CEO and I were talking probably not even that long ago, maybe six to eight months ago. And he was saying to me, do you know what the difference is here? When we're about to work with a client, they take us golfing right? They take us out for dinner. They're whining and dining us because we're now the go-to agency for this. So the grass isn't always greener, but that doesn't mean that where you are right now is the best market. You may have been born into this. You might be working in that market because it was where you worked in the corporate world or where you got married or where you went to college. That doesn't mean that there isn't something else going on in the world that could be even better for you if you know how to break into that market. The world has never been smaller. You know, Those of you that are doing a lot of talks will know there's just as big fees being paid for remote speaking gigs now as there is for in-person events. And there's much more of those virtual events. So there are so many things that you can be doing if you position yourself as that authority and start to explore the markets. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second that you rip up everything you're doing and go, I'm blindly going over there. What I am suggesting is that you adopt some sort of an 80-20 rule. Don't be afraid to look at new markets. We do this with our clients all the time. Market domination and globalization. Let's figure it out. Once we've established you as that authority, as that thought leader, as that go-to person for whatever it is that you do in your consulting firm, let's start playing around with this. Let's look at other markets. Where is there somewhere that we can win? And I'll end you with this little, little example from when I owned my recruitment business years ago now. There was this firm that I wanted to work with, big real estate firm. And I was desperate to work with them. Their head office was in London. And for the life of me, I just couldn't get in there, right? It was driving me insane. So what was happening was I was going down, I was presenting, I was doing the tender process. And it was just like, we'll check in three months, check in three months, check in three months. And like two years went by and I still wasn't working with them. And I was like, I'm going to have to find a different way of doing this, right? So what I did was I contacted the CEO of their business in South Africa. My wife was from South Africa. We spent a lot of time down there. And I was going to be traveling there for the Christmas break. And it turns out that his head office is in Johannesburg, which is where I was going to be staying. So I contacted him and I said, hey, I do a little bit of work with your guys over here. I also know a lot of the market over here. It'd be great just to catch up. Maybe we can grab a round of golf, go for a beer, whatever. And he messaged me back and was like, beer sounds good, right? So we went out for a beer. We had a chat. And he said, we'd love somebody like you. Like the agencies down here are shocking. Could you help us? Of course I can. Yeah, absolutely. So we got some deals done. Wasn't great financially because of the exchange rate with the RAND, but I, I got in, I helped them, and I did him a favor and placed some people. And he said to me, you know, this is awesome. Thank you so much. And I said, well, I wonder if there's a way you might be able to help me. And he said, sure. And I said, I'd love to be doing more work with the outfit in the UK. I just can't seem to get past the gatekeepers in HR. Can you help? 
And he said, I don't really know the UK guy all that well, but I do know the CEO for Europe. He's based in Austria. Would you like an introduction? And I said, yes, please. He wrote this glowing email about how amazing I was and how much help I was and blah, 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 blah. And the guy gets in touch with me and he says, I wish I had one of you in Europe. And I said, well, technically I am. I'm in the UK. And he's like, oh, can you help me with this? And I started winning all these contracts. And I basically cleaned up financially with Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. Like th that market for me was phenomenal. It was like incredible. But I backdoored it, right? So I was still working with the guy in South Africa. And now I'm working with the guy in, in uh, Central Europe, sorry, uh, Eastern Europe. So I'm working with Germany, I'm working with Austria, and I'm working with Switzerland, right? And once I was working with them, I got the introduction to the UK. Now, here's the greatest irony of this. The UK ended up being the biggest pain in the backside to work. So after about three months of working with them, I dropped them and went back to working with Europe and South Africa. Oh, well, uh, playing more fish in the sea for me. Farewell, my friend. <laughs> what does that tell you, right? I then leveraged the contacts that I had in those markets and introduced myself to their counterparts in America and started working with the US market, which is kind of what snowballed all of this to begin with. But the point is, that's where the game connection currency came from. If you've ever been to any of my events, you'll have heard me talk about this. Connection currency is you always have to pay, but it doesn't have to be with financial currency. Sometimes it can be with connections, introductions, favors, whatever, right? But it's the law of reciprocity, give, give, get. It's giving something to somebody and then wanting something back in return at a later date. Maybe that's an introduction. Maybe that's a direct contract. Maybe that's a deal, whatever. But it's leading genuinely with wanting to give to somebody first. My attitude is never, if I give them this, then they'll give me this. It's not that. My attitude is if I give them what they want, they're going to want to give me a favor and return the favor. And then I can utilize that favor for that introduction. There's a big difference. I'm always looking for the favors rather than the thing. And some people I have favors with may even be watching this. I have favors with the Romans like banked up as credits, right? I've done them so many favors at this point that I own them four or five credits and they're messaging me going, hey, what can I do to help you? Like you've done so much for me. And you know, without trying to sound like the Godfather, at some point I may call that favor in and say, ah, now you can help me with this, but who knows? Someday. And that day may never come. I'll call upon you to do a service for me. But uh, until that day, accept this justice as a gift on my daughter's wedding day. But ultimately, that's what comes down to connection currency. That's where making those introductions really makes sense. So what I want you to do here is I really want you to have a think about where you're at with this, right? So there's probably three things I want you to ask yourself. Number one is on a scale of one to 10, where do you think you are right now? If one is terrible and 10 is I'm the best known person in the world, where do you think you are in terms of credibility and authority? How well known for you outside of your circle of influence are you? That's the first thing I want you to ask. Second thing I want you to ask is on a scale of one to 10, one being the worst, 10 being the best, how confident are you that the market that you're in right now is the best, the only one that you should be working with? 10 is absolute certainty. This is where I should be. One is, I don't know why the hell I'm working this market at all. And then the third one is on a scale of one to 10, one being I'm doing nothing, 10 being I'm doing everything I possibly can. Where are you in terms of making those strategic relationships and those networks globally to help you expand both your authority, your visibility, and your profitability? 
You can either let me know in the comments, you can drop me a private message, or maybe you can just think about it yourself. But maybe just start to see and do a bit of a self-assessment as to where you're up to with that. And if you're not sure you like those answers, maybe watch this back again and make a bit of a plan as to how you can move forward. If you want some help, just ask me. That's what I'm here for. If I can't help you, I'll definitely know somebody that can. You. Um, it's not very often I see something funny in the Entrepreneur Magazine. In fact, I usually see things in there that sort of kill brain cells. I mean, it's it's a pretty draining place to be. Sometimes there's some gold, but usually not so much. But today there was a headline that particularly caught my attention, uh, and I'm sure you'll see why. So the headline is, Thieves Mysteriously Steal 200-Foot-Tall Radio Tower. And this is a story out of a small town called Jasper in Alabama. Um, basically, the owner of, sorry, the manager of a radio station posted this on his Facebook. So I'll read you the post. This is going to get out eventually, so I might as well make it public before it does. I have heard of thieves in this area stealing anything, but this takes the cake. This morning, my bush hog crew went down to Tower Site, where we have behind Mark Jack, and to do an early cleanup of the property before we do some more work down there. When he arrived, he called me and notified me that not only was the building vandalized, but my 200-foot tower was gone. They even stole every piece of equipment out of the building, cut the wires to the tower, and somehow managed to take down a 200-foot tower and take it from the property. Jasper police are investigating. Hopefully, they'll find who did it. This is a federal crime, uh, and anybody that has any information should get in contact. Okay, so I, I, I tried to compose myself before I recorded this. I'm clearly not doing a very good job. Brett, I should say to you, I'm not laughing at you, my friend. Like I'm not, I'm not finding pain in your misery. As such, I just the idea of somebody stealing a 200 foot tower for me is is pretty funny. Right all weekend to to figure it out, and I just can't. I've I've been in the radio business, around it all my life, and and then been in it for 26 years professionally, and I can say I've never heard of anything like this. And this one, I've seen it all now. How did they do it without anybody seeing is like what my first question. Secondly, is like, what the hell did they do with it? Again, if, if any of you want to help the Jasper County Police Department, maybe have a look at your neighbors and see if they suddenly have a, I don't know, like a 200 foot tower in their yard that wasn't there before. You might want to give the police a bit of a call uh, and let them know where it's at. Um, just the idea that they did that was insane. It's like, what are they even going to do with that? I mean, OK, I guess they could sell it, but. Just the audacity to take down a 200-foot tower and clear off with it. How did they even transport it, actually? Um, yeah, that's pretty absurd, to say the least. And it actually reminds me of a story from um, when I was much younger. I was in school, and we had a Christmas service. Um, so they took all the students, all the pupils, all the faculty, and they took us to Chester Cathedral. Beautiful building. I've talked about it before not part of the story but if you haven't seen it i highly recommend that you google it or even go there it's a beautiful place but the service was there and there was thousands of people at this service and it was fine you know the usual school christmas service thing some prayers some carols some stories some sermons some teachings and then we all go home right so this was on the friday on the monday we come in and we are all dragged into the assembly hall and you're like okay what's going on and the principal head teacher is stood on the stage and he stood there with the bishop. Now, I went to a religious school, but it was even unusual for us to have the bishop on stage with the principal. That was not normal. And he was pissed, right? So the principal starts laying into us about how we've let him down. And 
I'm like, who broke what, right? <laughs> someone's broke a stained glass window. Someone's vandalized something. Like, what's going on? <laughs> it still makes me laugh. This it, it turns out the reason that we were all in trouble is that during the service, whilst there was hundreds of people, in fact, thousands of people around, someone had the audacity to go up on the stage at the back of the cathedral and steal the baby Jesus from the nativity scene, right? So, I mean, I don't even know what to say. Like, number one is what was the point? I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe the baby Jesus was missing from your nativity scene at home, so you wanted to steal the baby Jesus. Maybe I'm just really naive. Maybe there is a whole black market uh, for buying baby Jesus. You know, some guy down an alleyway with a trench coat going, you want, you want to buy some baby Jesus? I, I have no idea what happened. All I know is that we all got in a lot of trouble and we never found out who it was. I know I have friends watching this now who are instantly pointing the finger. I swear it wasn't me. I'd have confessed by now because it's a funny story. Um, but ultimately, those two things have a lot in common for me. Um, because the the audacity to do that is stranger than fiction, right? It's stranger than fiction. And I, I had a client who was talking to me the other day about people stealing things from him. And he was talking to me about his social media. He'd been doing more content on LinkedIn. He'd been posting a lot. And he'd had people, you know, leaving a lot of comments. And I said, well, that's great. And he said, no, I'm really worried about it. I inquired sort of why, why are you worried about it? And he said, well, I'm worried about it because the people who are commenting are mainly my clients and prospects. I'm like, okay, still not seeing the problem. It's like, what if my competitors steal them from me? And it's like, okay. I see your point. We've all felt that at some point. I run a, a profitable networking monthly event on LinkedIn. Anybody of you who have attended knows it's a really great event, but you also get spammed by a lot of people who go and steal the audience list from LinkedIn because LinkedIn don't hide it. And they're like, hey, you're attending this event. Me too. Let me sell you some shit. Hey, you there. Would you like to buy some shit? I have lots of it. No, dude, I don't need, I don't need your shit. And no, everyone's like, it's horrible to the point where I've considered stopping doing it. But I had to remember the same as I told him. Number one, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Okay. Number two is if somebody can steal your client by just messaging them because they posted to you on social media, then that's a client you want to let go, right? That isn't somebody that you want to work with. If they instantly get you know, obsessed by the next shiny object and forget all the great work that you've done for them or about to do for them and go somewhere else. You didn't want that client anyway. Don't let the door hit you on the way out because I don't want ass prints on my new door. So it's all about authenticity. Okay. And in a strange way, somebody stealing baby Jesus or a 200 foot tower is authentic, isn't it? It's them being true to themselves. It's them going out for it. So it's stranger than fiction. But ultimately, some of the best stories are. So my point here isn't that you should go and steal baby Jesus or go and steal a 200-foot tower, although that would be quite amusing. That isn't what I'm saying to you. What I'm saying to you is that you're never going to lose by being authentic. The best stories out there are the real ones that people can relate to, they can smile with, they can cry with, they can laugh to, they can learn from. It's all about earning and learning. And the more that you can be your true, authentic self, the better that's going to be for you and your business because people are going to relate to you. They're going to see who you are. And ultimately, if somebody wants to steal your social media posts from that point or steal your contacts, good luck to them because those people are there because they enjoy the authentic version of you. How are they going to steal the authentic version of you? They're never going to be able to pass this off as well as you. They're always going to be playing second fiddle. You can't replace me. 
It's impossible. I'm that good. So there's no point in trying to replace me because you can't replace me. It's impossible. Number one, it was a funny story. Number two, it reminded me of that time at school. I often think about, I wonder who it was that did that. Um, I have a few people in mind if you're watching. You know who you are. Um, but ultimately, I, I just think this is a great opportunity to express authenticity. The more authentic you can be, the better it's going to be for you. It's better to be famous for 50 of the right people rather than 5 million of the wrong. So if you're creating authentic content that genuinely speaks to those people, helps those people, entertains those people, makes them laugh, makes them smile, makes them money, they're going to love you for it. So just embrace it. Go for it. Don't worry about people stealing your shit. Oh, but if anybody does know where baby Jesus is or know where they can find a 200-foot tower, please let Chester Cathedral know or Jasper County Police Department, respectively. I'm going to let you in on a little secret about a conversation I had recently because it's it's really been, it's been playing on my mind a lot, actually. And I think you'll see why as I go through this, but it also could have a major impact on you, especially if you are a consultant or even a business coach. So I was chatting with somebody uh, who has been in this industry for a very long time and they are a coach. They also coach in this industry. Um, so in a way, I suppose they'd be some form of competitor, but we're very good friends. We have a lot of conversations and I feel like what we do kind of complements each other actually, but they came up with a really interesting phrase. They said, oh, business is really slow at the moment. And I said, oh, how come? Like maybe they took some time off. Maybe they're changing their offers. I don't know. I said, well, it's the recession, isn't it? We're in a recession. And I was like, okay. Um, I think somebody forgot to tell me or my clients. And that's not me showing off. I was just, I was quite surprised that that was their answer. So I started asking around and it was really funny. I started getting mixed answers. I started getting some people saying, oh yeah, yeah, business is tough right now. It's never been harder to win clients. Um, you know, it's really difficult. And it's the recession, you know, the economy's not doing great. And I was like, okay, well, look, I'm not an economist by any stretch of imagination, but having lived and worked through several economy, um, economic crashes now and recessions now, I'm like, I'm not seeing these signs. Like, I don't, I don't recognize the scenario that you're currently describing. So I asked some other people and they were like, no, business is great. Business is brilliant. We're having the best year so far. And it, you know, we're, we've had the best month on record. We, we were crushing our targets. We're exactly where we need to be. We are ahead of target, whatever, all very positive stuff, but it was nobody in the middle. There was nobody going, things are all right. It was either things are really great or it was things aren't great because of the economy. And the more I thought about this, because I, I didn't want to jump to conclusions, but the more I thought about this and I thought about the people who were saying this is I don't think that this is an economic recession. I think this is a visibility recession. So what I mean by that is those people who have a good presence, they are well-known, they are recognized for what they do, they're seen as an authority, thought leader, celebrity, whatever you want to call it. They're doing really well, right? Those of you who are your industry's best-kept secret, not enough people know you exist. So let me give an example. You're really good at what you do. You're awesome. Loads of skills. You're awesome. You have clients who love you. You get repeat business and you get some referrals. But outside that small circle of influence, nobody knows you exist, Right? They're the people who are talking to me about the financial recession. And I just found that really interesting because we can't really do anything about a financial recession. Like it, we, we go through it and somebody on the news tells us where it's at and some banks close down and 
interest rates go up and we're basically told every time we go to the grocery store, well, what do you want? It's the recession. So you pay more for it now. And we can't really do a great deal about it, right? I appreciate I'm showing how naive I am with economics here. I didn't study the, study economics because I found it the most boring subject in the world. But the point is, we all feel it. We can feel when we're going through a recession because we see what it's like. We we feel the effect on our pocket, right? But given that this doesn't feel, given that two people are having very different experiences, two groups of people are having very different experiences, this doesn't feel like one of those scenarios that we have nothing to do with. Like it's outside of our control. This is completely in your control. You know, recognizing that we live in an attention economy in 2024, that the people who are going to thrive aren't necessarily the best at what they do. They're just really good at getting recognized. So they understand that perception beats perfection, that it's better to be best known than it is to be best in class. Now, it's best to be both of those things. But if you're best in class and nobody knows you exist, you're a classic example of your industry's best kept secret. And they're the people who are already going to struggle this year. They are already struggling this year. They're going to continue to struggle this year, not because they're not good at what they do, but because not enough of the right people know they exist. Now, the good news is I'm not talking about create endless amounts of content, you know, become world famous for what you do. Like none of that's necessary for most people's small consultancies, right? It's just, if you were famous for 50 of the right people, your business would be in a completely different place. And most people agree with that. In fact, I'll give you a statement that most people nod along to. It's better to be famous for 50 of the right people rather than 5 million of the wrong. Most people will go, yeah, absolutely. And then they look like a deer in the headlights when I say, okay, so who are those 50 right people for you? And what's your strategy to get in front of them? And it's like, Ugh, okay, that's, I don't know. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. Well, you need to know, because that's the difference between thriving and potentially not even surviving, right? It doesn't come down to your talent. If it did, you know, I, I say this to people all the time. If hard work and talent was all it took, every painter, every bin man in the world would be a multi, multi-millionaire, but they're not right? This is a combination of visibility plus credibility equals profitability. And for most people, what they have is credibility. So they have clients who love them, repeat business, referrals, good reputation. That's it. Good. That's awesome, right? And it gives them a little bit of profitability. But the reason that they're not more profitable, having more impact, speaking on more stages is the visibility piece. And that's the piece that people seem to get very confused about. I've seen lots of different versions of this. I've seen people trying to start TV shows, podcasts, put themselves out there every five minutes, create a new piece of content every 30 seconds. You know, I'm going to commit to writing 10 blogs a week. Okay, I had to make some kind of a dent by now. And it's like, so what? I mean, you still need an audience to put it in front of, right? I know somebody who went on a podcast almost every day of the year last year. They made not one single sale from one of those podcast interviews because they just said yes to everybody who gave them a stage and a platform. Like if that's your way of doing business, you may as well walk into Costco and start shouting out your value proposition and telling people why you're great because you're going to have just as much luck selling in the middle of Costco or Asda or Tesco's or Woolworths or whatever other supermarket chain you can think of, right? It's not about that. It's about making sure that you are speaking to the right people, you're being authentic, you're being yourself, and that those right people can recognize you as 
the authority as credible as somebody that they can know, like, and trust, right? And that's where case studies and things like that really come into it. But I wanted to share this because it was such an interesting position to be in that somebody was giving me this matter of fact statement. Business is hard right now because of the financial recession. Meanwhile, I speak to other people who say, couldn't disagree more. Things are great right now. Business has never been better. How can those two people be living and working in the same markets, the same environments with the same people? It doesn't make sense, right? So that's where I firmly believe that it is not an economic recession. It is a visibility recession. Those who are struggling are not visible enough. Those who are thriving are visible, credible, and profitable. Just some food for thought. That's what you want, making money while you in your box of shorts Feel like nothing yeah. and nobody is stopping you Even when they said it was impossible No need for hesitation, feel P, yeah, that's your man Go from the best kept secret to the go-to brand Let's go, hey, billionaires, billionaires in boxes Hey, billionaires, billionaires in boxes Hey, time to grow, make the world know all about you Hey, billionaires, billionaires in boxes Let's go